Three. Two. Two. One. One. Dr. CB, Dr. Chinchilla J. Nice, nice. Yeah, Chinchilla J. Nice. What's going on, Daniel John? You know, just uh, living that life. I believe that. It says it all and <laughs> says nothing simultaneously. <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah, what are you up to today? Man, it's a good day. It's a Friday. So, um, what do I got? I'm seeing clients today, man. <laughs> we did a little interview with Morgan Shogren. You uh, smoked or what? Oh, man, I was a little foggy behind the eyes earlier. That's for sure. <laughs> I don't know if it was just a, a bout of dehydration or, you know, it's the end of the week. Not sure. Is that a is that a medical term? Foggy behind the eyes? Yeah, it's in the ICD ten. <laughs> What's uh, what are the symptoms of foggy behind the eyes? Uh, it's literally just a thinking experience that there are clouds behind your eyes and it's <laughs> difficult to see through. Um, there's a there's a question as to whether you're a human and if the world is plastic or not. Yeah, if you experience those symptoms, you got foggy behind the eyes. <laughs> There's For a question sure. as to whether the world is plastic or not. Yeah, man. Like people, like, uh, yeah, like when everything. you're talking to me earlier, you're like, is Dunny uh, plastic? Yeah, yeah. You know what I experience this a lot is like working on the website. Like if I'm staring at like a <laughs> computer screen for a minute, I feel like my eyes just start to like gently <laughs> begin to cross themselves. And then everything behind my eyes begins to like kind of just go foggy. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Then, uh, gently cross themselves. They gently cross themselves. <laughs> like a pair of legs, Daniel. <clears throat> but in that, if I'm like, you know, you walk in the office or something and I'll see someone and I think like, oh man, everything looks fake right now. Like everyone <laughs> looks like a Lego. Is this wood actually just plastic? Yeah. Is this wood plastic? Is yeah. that person a Lego? Is that person a Lego? <laughs> Am I in the Lego movie? Yeah, yeah. Am I in the Lego movie? But it is good to know that because once I can catch that, I can say, oh, I'm just foggy behind the eyes. Foggy behind the eyes. So then it leads to the question, uh, what is the course of treatment for foggy behind the eyes? Is it just labeling, oh, I'm foggy behind the eyes? Or what's the treatment for that? Well, I mean, do not borrow from AA, but the first step is uh, acceptance, you know, acknowledging that we're foggy behind the eyes. (laughs) So if I can just see that. that steps two through 12. Yeah, that's a whole other process. This one's just acknowledge that you're foggy behind the eyes, drink some water, and then have an interview for with uh, Morgan Shogren, man. And then if all, all of a sudden everything's, you're good. You're back. We back? We back, man. I'm feeling great. We plowed through an interview, an outro, and let's do an intro now. Man. One take Cody. One take nice. Let's go. Well, speaking of uh, one take Cody, did you work on that introduction so we could introduce our guest today? Uh, nah, man, I didn't do that. What I do is little command C, command V. Yeah. <laughs> Cut and paste. Cut and paste this joint for sure. There's nothing about Morgan's um, author description that I can make any better. So it was kind of one of those things. that was like, let's not touch this. So then we should probably cite that this is uh, this is from the Tory Press. Yeah, Tory House Press. Hashtag go. Voices of the land. Yeah, voices for the land. How voices do you know for that? the land. Yeah, man. Well done. You yeah. didn't know the slogan for THP, man. <laughs> So this is Tory House Press, uh, the intro. So who we got? Who we got today? Let's go beyond flag with Morgan Shogren, hashed, or at running underscore bump. She is a free range writer, explorer, and defender of wild places. She's the author of Path of Light, a walk through colliding legacies of Glen Canyon, Outlandish, the best Bears Ears National Monument hikes, and the best Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument hikes. Her writing has appeared in Arizona Highways, Archaeology Southwest, Biographic and Sierra Magazine. She is the recipient of the 2022 Water Desk Grant for reporting on the Colorado River, 
a nomad by nature, Shogren lives on the Colorado Plateau and feels most at home in the wild. Wild. Let's go. Let's go. All right. Well, let's go beyond flag with Morgan Shogren. Welcome to Beyond Flag, a Beyond the Pines production, created by, with, and for the people of Flagstaff, building connection in the town we love. We are your hosts, Dr. Daniel J. Phillips, and Cody Bayless, also known as Dr. Chinchilla Nice Nice. Thanks for tuning in as we go Beyond Flag, straight from the dunny of our observatory. Yo, we are here with Run and Bum. Morgan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no doubt. It's a pleasure to get to meet you telephonically. And yeah, I really appreciate you carving out some time to uh, entertain the pod. Awesome. For me, I would just be curious to kind of check in on your day to day. And uh, what does that look like right now? <laughs> My day to day is is very dynamic. It's always different. Um, a, a week ago, I was out on book tour for releasing Path of Light and in a different Southwest Colorado Plateau city every day, um, which actually was kind of how my life was the last few years, constantly traveling around and super nomadic. Um, but then I got to come home to a small, I've been living in a small rural Southern Utah town and immediately packed up backpacks and pack rafts. And me and my boyfriend went out for a little Glen Canyon adventure. Um, and then, and now I'm back and I have another book talk tonight and I'm sitting out in the sun um, riding and watching a, a family of horses running around in a pasture. Um, so yeah, my days can, they can be big adventures. They can be lots of driving. They can be I mean, sitting outside and riding for 10 hours straight. It's a mixed bag. <laughs> yeah. I know you described yourself as a nomad. It seems like you find yourself traveling around the Colorado plateau, moving locations day to day. Yeah, I, that's, there's been more of that in the last few years. I've been really grateful to finally find a place um, in the last year that truly felt like home and a good place for me to base out of. Um, but what's really interesting is when I look at the big picture from the last few years, I've basically been inching my way around the different areas of Glen Canyon. Um, so but the nomadic journey around Glen Canyon is really what home life has been for me. Yeah, it sounds amazing. And what you mentioned taking pack rafts out just recently. And uh, I guess I wonder what's the current state of the canyon and what was it like to be out there um, even today or yesterday when you were just out there? Yeah, I was just out there yesterday and I've taken a couple of trips um, this spring and, and late winter. It's interesting because the water's still really low. It's crept up a few inches with the recent snow melt. Um, we have obviously a tremendous snowpack in the Colorado Plateau. Um, but everything's still super low and uncovered, and I've been documenting and exploring that for the last couple of years now. Um, but it's also, it's kind of an emotional thing for me because by July, the water is expected to bump up 50 to 70 feet because of runoff, which is obviously great for our water supply. But so many of the places that I've spent time exploring getting to know that have been become favorite camps or special memories are going to go underwater and so it's kind of been a farewell tour of this, this layer of Glen Canyon that I've gotten to know in the last few years 
um, that I that I hope and, and know will return, but I, I know it's about to go under. Yeah, what a like an in between uh, kind of thing, huh? So these places that you were able yeah. to go explore and see that were um, kind of available to be known as a product of low water are predicted to be underwater again. Yeah, so I mean, just just two days ago, there was. A, on the maps, everything on the maps that has the lake is wrong. So, you know, there's high water and so you just kind of have to gauge and go, well, we'll go this way and see what happens. And what we thought would be a passage into this, this side canyon, a tributary of Glen Canyon, dead ended right at this tiny little waterfall that poured into a nice little bowl of sandstone. And it was right at eye level. And so, you know, that's going to go underwater almost immediately. And then at lower water, it kind of gave you this vision of, oh, my gosh, how big is this waterfall? Um, so, there, so there's dead ends like that, but also seeing the plant life come back. And it really starts with the, the invasive and non-native vegetation on the shoreline. And as you work your way out and you, and you walk back up the side canyons that have been out of the water for sustained periods, the native riparian plant life comes back. And so even though the shoreline is kind of this, sludgy detritus with lots of trash and lots of weeds you know if it just could have 10 years out how beautiful it would be just like it's neighboring 100 feet up the canyon yeah yeah yeah. i kind of wonder a different angle too i worry that individuals will um take this year that's such an aberration watch that water rise and then see that as a justification to keep keep things going business as usual in terms of the the dam and the water flow Oh, I mean, absolutely, that's a concern. But I think I've really, really gotten nitty-gritty nerdy on the water situation mm-hmm. with the Colorado River. And I do think there's finally a reckoning that um, this is serious enough that big change has to be made. Um, but, of course, not at the level of wide-scale societal culture change that we all know plays a role in the future of water and climate change and how serious it really is. But I, I think, I think, um, this, this water year is not going to be turn using, using water into a frenzy. That's just not possible anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Water nerdy. Is that, is that the term you used? <laughs> I mean, I wake up and I, I check the water levels in Lake Powell, like a surfer checking the wave report and, different snowpacks and water runoff and I sit in Bureau of Reclamation meetings with predictions of how the water year is going to go or different management options down the road. I, I, I just, I'm pretty water nerdy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's admirable. I, um, I wonder what do you, what are your, what are the tea leaves that you say? Cause you say the indicators seem like there's an awareness that we can't keep operating the way we were, but also that the broader culture doesn't see that what what do you see in the tea leaves or what do you hear in those meetings or in the reports that suggests that we'll um start to approach that water supply differently oh i mean there's big they're going to make different management changes that potentially will change how the colorado river is distributed and cuts are made like it could change a hundred years of how that's happened between the states Mm -hmm. um things are you know there's there's things on the table to alter how the dam operates or even modifying it so i mean and these are all changes that they're going to discuss the bureau of reclamation and decide upon this summer 
So it's, it's absolutely on the table that things are going to be done differently. Um, but still the elephant in the room is that we're trying to modify things and adapt to um, keep up an unsustainable way of life. And that, that's not something the Bureau of Reclamation is going to bring up. That's something, I mean, I know I'm a little extreme in that, um, but, but it's, and that so much of this project was examining how far we've, this project meaning path of light, how far we've strayed from um, a life that coexists and lives with nature versus trying to control it. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, let's get a little more into that. Maybe by you referenced the book that you just completed in the book tour that you've been on and the media you've been doing for that. So uh, the book that you wrote is The Path of Light. And, um, you know, I saw some references to how that title came about in reading a little bit about you. Would you be willing to share about the title, including the Dene origin? Yeah, so the the title Path of Light um, comes from a Dene oral story um, that was told by a man named Wolf Killer. And Wolf Killer was the neighbor of explorer, Southwest explorer John Wetherill, um, who many people know through his associations with Mesa Verde and Rainbow Bridge um, and some archaeology controversies. And I was working on a story about John and was introduced to his great-grandson, Harvey Leak. And I had hoped to retrace some of John Wetherill's expeditions. And so we met up on the, the south rim of the Grand Canyon. And I expected Harvey, Harvey Leak, who is John Wetherill's great-grandson, to pull out some maps and give me a history lesson and instead he pulls up this book by wolf killer and starts reading me a story called the path of light and basically it's about choosing um the better path over darker choices and thinking about how you can take good care of yourself so that you can be a better so you can show up and also be a better part of making the world a better place and that's considered the path of light and the discussion ended with Harvey looking at me and saying, are you going to choose the path of progress, um, which is, you know, continuing to live in this developed world and just going along with the status quo and never questioning, should we be doing things differently? Or are you going to choose the path of light? And at this point in my life, I was living out of my Jeep and kind of in an in-between space and, and not really sure I was going to go after even our meeting. And I was like, I'm, obviously going to choose the path of light. I don't really know what that means, (laughs) but it sounds like that's the right one. And so I left our meeting and and drove um, north to Bears Ears National Monument and continued to live there through the winter and took it upon myself to just really study the history and start understanding um, why that area was so important to be protected and how much, but also how much it had changed in the last hundred years. So there was more context that understanding of why Bears Ears National Monument and that's how much it's changed in the last hundred years but also going back a millennia with with the indigenous people who have called it home and really try to make sense of what protection means um and and that's that's what I felt was the calling to the path of light yeah so at first it was like just uh feeling like the path of light was the right answer you're right right. I was like well sure and then a little bit of introspection about what the what that path literally was for you um and 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 the book kind of uh it well for me in what you just said it almost sounds like the book kind of details that that path of light what you came to discover 
absolutely. And and part of that was I was, you know, reading these historical accounts and one in particular, um, this book called Rainbow Bridge by Charles Bernheimer totally captivated me. It was written by this um, German born man who was living in Manhattan. He was a millionaire in the 1920s. He had a textile manufacturing business and he was so smitten by these Western stories he read by a kid, read as a kid when he was in Europe. When he finally had the money and the wherewithal, he hired John Wetherill and all the best guides and Earl Morris and archaeologists to take him on these month-long expeditions. And the real hook, line, and sinker for me was that he wanted to turn his expeditions into something more. And for me, I had been working on guidebooks and Bearsers and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monuments. I was very intrigued by those places and I enjoyed exploring and running long distances and going on big hikes, but I wanted to have more than just this selfish purpose of going out and having fun. And so I worked on those guidebooks as a means to um, disseminate information about why they needed to be protected to the people going to hike there. Um, And also to create ethical guides for hiking with respect to cultural sites and the landscape. And so that really, even though we had nothing in common, me and this Bernheimer guy from the 1920s, we had nothing in common, but we shared that overlap of like, wow, this place is really special. I want to spend a lot of time here. How do I give back? And Bernheimer did these expeditions for a decade. And by the end of them, he realized it was even more than research, that he needed to use his, his money, his wealth and his influence to help protect areas of Glen Canyon, including Rainbow Bridge, as a national park. And that led to the earliest proposals for both Bears Ears and Grand Staircase National Monuments. And and to me, once I made that connection, that's when I knew, oh, well, the path of light is, is so much bigger than answering a question or having a purpose that winter living in my Jeep. Like, this is, this is a book. This is something I really need to go all in with. Yeah. And can you take us through the process of like actually moving into action with that? Like I would imagine it started with an idea and what was it like for you to first have that idea and then move it into, we're doing this idea. And that was an adventure in itself because I, I, at a certain point I was working on, I would write, I'd go on an adventure and sort of retrace part of one of Bernheimer's expeditions and do a little bit of research or connect with somebody who had a connection to the expeditions or meet, you know, someone from the Paiute tribe or from the Navajo nation who had something to teach me about the area. And I would intertwine these into short stories. Um, and I would share them in, in local publications and I write for Arizona highways. Um, and so that was kind of stringing me along and I I knew there was a book, but I still didn't really know how it was going to all come together because I was pulling on threads that were getting so complicated and this terrain is so vast we're talking millions of acres of land and um, and so many different historical characters and present day characters so I was just like well I am on a vision quest that I cannot explain to anybody I, I couldn't even for I would say two and a half years I could say I think I'm working on a book but I, I can't explain to you where where it's leading me or where it's going and I actually hit kind of a hiccup At the end of 2020 I knew I was stuck and so I decided I needed to retrace, fully retrace Bernheimer's 1929 expedition in Glen Canyon and Bears Ears um, to fully understand what such a, you know, a 300 mile expedition with multiple people and coordinating gear and food, what that was really like and to see how much terrain he covered. And, and I had just 
I'm like, either I'm going to do this and go, this is crazy and, and call it good, or I'm going to do this and I'll finally be able to write the book. And that's what happened. Okay. So Bernheimer in his expedition kind of acted as a place for you to become unstuck. It was sort of like <laughs> retracing yeah. the steps that moved you through that process. Yeah. And, and I mean, the, the little bits that I was doing before I was retracing, you know, his trip to rainbow bridge and I'd go out for a week or, you know, do, do weekend trips or, or car camping and, and different areas. But I knew I needed to just fully commit to know what it's like to be out for more than a month like him and really see the vast changes to the landscape. And, and, and so beyond Bernheimer, who was Bernheimer was with me almost the entire way. Um, walking became such a manner of becoming unstuck and just having my journal and just diving into this story. That was my own story that I was creating. Um, and not just, not just retracing Bernheimer, but really going on a big adventure that, um, I was worth writing about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I'm wondering how did your, um, maybe your understanding of Bernheimer or even relationship to him evolve or change as you retraced his steps through the Canyon? I mean, so Bernheimer was between 55 and 65 years old during these expeditions. So, I mean, and, and it's also important to note that he was on, he was taking pack train trips. So they had horses and mules carrying equipment, um, which is still extremely physical. And I was able to um, experience packing mules with the old equipment. And it's, it's exhausting and dealing with animals is a whole other layer. Um, but still to think about someone his age, being out for a month at a time and he's coming from the East coast and, and working a business job. Um, and his guides were the same age as well. Um, but they're out on the land all the time. So for him to come from New York, take off his suit and tie and just dive into something so rugged, um, gave me such a great appreciation for him. But I also went out with, um, modern day historians and, and guides and archeologists and researchers who are, in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so to see how much the love for the desert when you have it can carry you to do these incredible things. And I realized, without a doubt, Bernheimer had a true, true love for the desert to be able to do this and to, to spin it into a national park proposal. And um, I think probably one of the biggest epiphanies was I was able to um, track down a second book that he wrote from the American Museum of Natural History where he reflected on his expedition the year he died. And these expeditions had such a strong impact on his life and how he viewed the world and its creation and how small we are and, and that we, we have such big responsibility and yet we're so insignificant in this grand scheme of nature. I just, my admiration for, you know, Bernheimer wasn't perfect. These were outdated times. Some of the languages he used would be very outdated today. Um, but when looking at his progression, the desert helped Bernheimer become this really fully realized and connected man, very connected to nature and, and the world around him. It's really incredible. In reading about you, I'd read about the article you'd written in Arizona Highways about Bernheimer and then read a little bit about Bernheimer. And I, I came away with the question of like, how does Morgan relate to this guy? Like what, <laughs> like what, what's the connection? Cause there were so many obvious ways that you seemed different. And so it, I think you just answered that the connection you had 
is that the environment, the landscape, and the world, the, the flora and the fauna seem to speak to Bernheimer in a way that he connected to and listened, and you respect that about him. Absolutely, and, and that's something that I feel so strongly about when I'm out in the desert or in, in a wild place. And, and Bernheimer called it when he was out back in, out on his expeditions a near-to-nature way of living. And that so resonates with how I've chosen to live my life. And, you know, I'm, I'm not the kind of person that befriends people who are just like me on paper. Um, I, I'm very drawn to people who philosophically and spiritually and emotionally are in the same plane. And I really felt that with Bernheimer. And then as my journey, you know, hiking with the ghost of Bernheimer, if you will, progressed, I, I made friends who you would just never imagine. You know, I'm a woman in my mid-30s and, you know, this white blonde girl from California. And now I'm making time twice a month to go hang out with a man named Clyde Whiskers into the city and hiking with, you know, guys who are in their 70s um, and having so much in common with them through our love for the land and, and this very this philosophical approach to life and travel through the desert that I shared with them that maybe if I went into a town and sat down and had coffee with someone who you'd say, Oh, you too. You like hiking. We should be friends. You're the same age. Like you're both women. We, we might not have that connection. And so I, I really felt that with Bernheimer and mm-hmm. my, my only wish to the universe is that I, I'm sad that I can't time travel back and meet him. You know, it comes to mind there, Morgan, when you were discussing, there's like a philosophical, uh, maybe underpinning to your experience. And I was wondering how did, like, how did that develop for you? You mentioned just being a, uh, what'd you say? A white blonde girl from California. And I'm wondering how did you get connected to the Colorado plateau? How did that philosophy develop over time? I, I think it came out of circumstances and timing, but also over time, I, I had, I ended up in the Colorado plateau after going through, uh, a divorce and, and really losing everything and she chose to keep my jeep and I kind of had this attitude of when you lose it all you might as well you have nothing to lose so I'm not going to try and get a normal job and you know at the time I was working for a marketing firm I quit I didn't rent another place to live I was going to go all in with exploring wild places and writing about them that's just what I felt in my gut and the first, really one of the first assignments I got was to Bears Ears National Monument. And I felt a very strong pull to the area, both with the monument protections, which were new, but also kind of um, under this magnifying glass with Trump possibly reducing them. Um, but, but sensing that there was something really important and special that I needed to stay for. And, and kind of a woo story of, of explaining the best I can do to explain what that connection might be something bigger than my own understanding is one of the first places that I went to in Bears National Monument. Um, it was a cultural site in a, in a big alcove at the time I knew very little about the indigenous cultural history of the area. And, and it was special to me to go to the site and only through retracing Bernheimer's expeditions that I learned later that that was a site that Bernheimer and his team researched. And it, it was known, it's now known as Bernheimer Cave. Um, and it is a very significant um, cultural site. And it even has his inscription. And, you know, he carved his name in the rock in that cave. And so I 
that pull that I felt to stay, I think back to that moment and tell that story rather than try to explain the alchemy of what I experienced. Yeah, yeah. I could see how that would kind of propel you in that direction, though. And so I, I guess I wonder the amount of time that unfolded between that and then you beginning um, to retrace Bernheimer's steps. Yeah, so I went to that site in early 2017 and I began retracing Bernheimer and, and his routes and studying him in early 2019. So about two years. But so, yeah, I would, but when that happened in 2017, I had no idea who Bernheimer was. I, I knew very little. Um, and, and that not knowing that that became my, rather than seeking a home with four walls and a place to rent, I sought an understanding of place to give me a sense of home and, and it offered me so much healing and, and something to focus on besides my own. Um, you know, I, I was obviously, I was healing from a divorce and trying to rebuild my life. And it gave me something to really sink my teeth into besides myself to learn about such a vast landscape and, um, and involve myself with efforts to help protect it. And initially I had these intentions of I'm going to do this and I'm going to travel over the world and go to different parts of the West. And I dabbled in that and, and did some international travel for writing assignments. Um, but every time I tried to leave, my heart just pulled me back to the Colorado plateau. The Colorado plateau. And um, it sounds like you um, began in Bears Ears and, and then some of your sh- focus has shifted from Bears Ear and grown, uh, well, maybe Bears Ears and Escalante over to Glen Canyon. It makes me wonder, what can you share about what you've learned both in your lived experience of the land and information wise? Um, how have U.S. politics and fossil fuel industries affected the Bears Ears area? Yeah, so, so to answer the first part of the question, I mean, so I, I first came out here and ended up in Bears Ears National Monument and began working on a guidebook and writing stories that advocated for ongoing protections of the monument. And when I saw that Grand Staircase Escalante was being reduced in tandem, that obviously drew my, it just naturally drew my interest to, to cover both monuments. And under, because even though they're different monuments, the what was happening to them was very similar with the reductions and the reasoning behind it. And they're not too far away. And so when I moved my focus to Grand Staircase Escalante, even just naturally by driving from Barriers to Grand Staircase, there was this place known as Lake Powell in between. And I began to look in, into that and try and understand it. And again, this is coming from someone who grew up in California and did not have a lot of awareness of what was going on out here. And I go, huh, so this was a place, this was Glen Canyon, not just the lake. And there's all this history there and people wanted to protect it. So in between these two monuments that are kind of in peril or very much in peril, there's a glaring reminder of the worst that can happen if we don't take action to protect them. And as, as I grew that awareness, I, I began to see these landscapes not as Grand Staircase, Escalante, Glen Canyon, Bears Ears, but as the Glen Canyon region as a whole, um, which really brought my interest in. And the, the impacts of the fossil fuel industry on these areas are, you know, they, they still appear wild and very much um, beautiful, but there are roads cutting through them. And the climate, because the fossil fuel has absolutely been altered, you know, the night, 
a hundred years ago, the climate was much wetter. It was much cooler. And that's well documented both through Bernheimer's journals and, and climate records. We've over allocated the Colorado river to continue to um, foster our insatiable need for growth in society. Um, it's, you know, there's not necessarily a lot of oil drilling per se in these areas at the moment. Um, but the, the fossil fuel industry affects every area, no matter how um, untouched it appears by humans. Yeah, at least a follow-up question for me. I wonder, um, like, over-allocating water from the Colorado River and doing that by means of the Glen Canyon Dam and that Lake Powell flooded Glen Canyon... Uh, I wonder, is there any lesson we can learn in that in being aware of what the resource is that can be applied to uh, what's going on with uh, Grand Staircase and Bears Ears in terms of the land being protected and then that protection shrinking and kind of dependent on the political party it kind of ballooning or shrinking? Can we learn anything from how we uh, treated the area in Glen Canyon and apply it to Bears Ears? Oh, ab- absolutely. And I, and I think the, the bigger issue is I, I think everyone who's trying to protect these areas, Green Staircase and, and Bears Ears, and continue to protect them, um, is very well aware of those connections. The, the issue is, you know, will, will these protections be sustained? Um, and in a lot of ways, you know, Grand Staircase and Bears Ears still stand to fare so much better than Glen Canyon, which, can, which still has many... Um, you know, culturally significant and ecologically significant areas that are technically with national park boundaries, but are maybe not being managed with the care um, that they're due um, because it's a reservoir and a national recreation area. So I actually, um, to flip this, I I really hope the management um, in Glen Canyon, as the water levels fluctuate or perhaps they're altered forever by low water levels, look to... um, both Grand Staircase, the Science Monument, and Bears National Monument, which is co-managed by five local tribes, to think about how they can manage what's emerging out of Glen Canyon better and, and more ethically and, and respons- responsibly than with respect. Yeah. Is, is that the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition that you're referencing? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you'd be up for it uh, or if this puts you on the spot too much, but would you summarize what recommendations they make or um, even how they philosophically approach recommendations they end up making? I mean, it's, it's really complicated, but also beautiful. And I, I'm not the, I'm not able, nor would I be the person to speak on um, behalf of the tribes mm-hmm. about this intertribal coalition, but there are some wonderful reports that they've put together about management recommendations um, with perspectives from each tribe, which is the Navajo nation the Ute Tribe, the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe, the Pueblo of Zuni, and the Hopi Tribe. And you can see the different philosophies that come together and where there are differences, but where they they have approached each area of management, um, you know, individually, but also cohesively. Um, And it's also just such a beautiful example of perhaps how all um, users of the land could come together together. with management decisions. I mean, that's a very aspirational thing at this point. Um, but, but there is framework, you know, cause these tribes, each tribe is very different and they don't have the same philosophy and, and there's overlap. Um, and yet they're coming together and, and that's a great lesson to us all. Mm-hmm. 
Thank yeah, it you. seems like a really positive thing. I was wondering, almost through Morgan's lens, like if if you could wave a wand or something to that effect, and if uh, it looked the way you would want it to, or if uh, Glen Canyon was being managed in the way you wanted it to, or the river was flowing in the way you wanted it to, what would it look like? I, <laughs> Craig Childs asked me this, a similar question before, and I honestly, I'm I am not God, and I'm glad I don't have to make these kinds of decisions. <laughs> I mean, it sounds weird because, of course, I've got. My, I want the river to be free flowing again. I'd like to return to things the way they were before the 1950s and a pristine river corridor and even clean up the stuff from the 1890s, you know, Glen Canyon Gold Rush. Um, but that's, I'm also a, a realist, very grounded in, in the present, even though I like to explore history and imagine time travel. And, and so it's, it's hard for me to say, to wave that magic wand. Um, because I don't know if we would still have learned anything. Maybe we would have protected um, Glen Canyon would still be here. And I would, I would love that and be beautiful. Um, but it really does serve as a marker of how, how out of line we are in the way we're living as humans on this landscape. And so I, I think it is teaching us an important lesson. Um, but I would like to wave a magic wand where we learn that and we do better. Yeah, that sounds really important. I always think of, I have this funny relationship to Glen Canyon Dam. Like whenever we go up there, I always feel fascinated by it. Like it is oh, just, me this, too. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating, right? And it represents this like massive visual scar in some way. Um, yeah. And I always think of like, yeah, re- from a realistic perspective, what is the best way going forward? We had spoken with Jack Stiles from Glen Canyon Institute recently, and it seemed that GCI's recommendation around the dam is to like kind of retrofit it for low level water levels or for low water levels. And then to, uh, kind of have Glen Canyon sort of make itself back into like a, uh, maybe more of like a usable type national park or something to that effect. And I guess I'd wonder, do you see that as being a, a viable option? Does that seem like a good direction? Anything like that? I mean, so there's multiple layers to, to that question as, as with everything, um, you know, on a hydraulic perspective, I was talking to a former Navajo Nation water commissioner about the dam and the water levels and, you know, the water's coming up, but if they're going to retrofit the dam for, for lower water in the future, which seems to be almost a certainty that things will drop again, if if they're not going to approach it to deal with the lowest possible levels, which is Deadpool, where water will not be able to even pass through to the Grand Canyon, then all they're doing is sinking money into a dying jalopy car and dragging a dead, uh, you know, an almost dead horse. <laughs> that's, that's how he described it. And and he was so spot on. And so that's where, you know, I'm absolutely in line with Glen Canyon Institute. I mean, if you're going to spend money, pr- you know, prepare for the worst and, and make sure that that water can pass through into the Grand Canyon. Because if we allow the, Grand Canyon to be destroyed because of our negligence. What does that say about do national parks even mean anything? I mean that it's not just about Glen Canyon. It's also we have to protect Grand Canyon below, which has also been forever altered by this dam, and we have to reckon with that. Um, and so I think there would be, you know, obviously very beautiful things that would come back in Glen Canyon, and and people are going to take a big interest in it. I think it will make a very difficult and tricky management situation because getting around in Glen Canyon at low water um, can be hazardous. It can be, um, there's sensitive stuff that's emerging and there's not a current management plan for that. Um, so I don't think it's as simple as just 
make it a national park and let's, you know, draw crowds here. I, I think it will be, um, create new problems, but I still think, um, it would be the right thing to do. Yeah. It's a really complicated being, issue. Yeah. Right thing to do being let Glen Canyon come back and obviously, um, protect it. Um, but as it stands, I would definitely have my concerns about how the national park service would manage it. Yeah. That's kind of like, uh, taking the jalopy and, and making it a pinto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just, just rebranding it, you know? Yeah. So, um, and obviously I think the biggest thing I would like to see in that conversation is involving the tribes of the yeah. area with, um, with, with the process of letting Glen Canyon reemerge and, and letting it be its own living entity. It's not just, Oh, and now it's like there's a Canyon. It's a national park. No, Glen Canyon is a living thing that we drowned and tortured for decades. Let's let it come back to life and take care of it. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what you've shared and some of our questions are based around, um, you know, what you've learned from, meeting with uh, the native peoples of the area and from other uh, land managers. Um, I wonder what you've learned from your experience in that journey. What did you learn either about yourself or about the land and the region in, in those journeys? I think the biggest thing I've learned through all of this and particularly through my um, interactions and um, getting to know people from indigenous communities is to listen. Um, and, and, and this applies to everything, to self, to landscape, to meeting new people, to learning from indigenous people, um, to leave my own, um, objectives far behind me and in fact, let them go burn them and just show up ready to listen and let the stories unfold. Um, and that, and that can be sitting across from an elder listening to their story that can be walking out onto the land and, and observing, um, both its current state and, and the changes it's had happen to it. And also with myself to not hold rigidly onto goals or what I want, um, the future to be, but to let life unfold. And as long as I'm, um, and with all these things, you know, steering towards what truly intuitively feels like a path that is healthy for both me and the world around me to, to trust where it might lead. Yeah. Can, excuse me. If, I was just thinking like, um, are you making, uh, I don't know, I guess like a contact with yourself or really being in touch with yourself and what it's been like to experience the desert over time. And as time has unfolded, and I wonder just through your own experience, what have you learned about yourself through contact with the desert or through making, um, uh, going on explorations and adventures and that sort of thing? Yeah. You know, I've, I, I was thinking about this yesterday. I've learned to be incredibly self-reliant. Um, and, and in that self-reliance, so I've also learned how much I need community and loved ones and, and good people in my life, but to be very discerning about who that is. Um, you don't need everyone in your life. You just need the, the people who are your people. And, but also not to forget that you're, you yourself is one of, your main people. Um, and so that's been a cool, cool balance, the ebb and flow of, of working together and, and building a, a family of, of friends in the desert in the most unlikely of places where you just wouldn't think that would happen. Um, but also to really, um, trust myself and, and now look at the landscape and know, yeah, Hey, I set off with some food for 10 days and no trail and a map and I know I'll be fine. 
And that really has honed what I feel like my ability to make better choices in my life than I would have a few years ago, because I know I can trust myself. Yeah. That's an interesting balance of like, you're describing like self-reliance and also a need for community. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, and that's from, again, one of these things of just letting, letting things un- unfold and, um, you know, cause so often when I'm talking to people and, and I do a lot of things on my own, I'm very independent. I'm not the kind of person who's not going to go just because I'm, I'm solo or no one can go with me. I will just go do it. Um, but I'm not an Everett Ruth retracer. You know, it's, it's nice to do things. So it's wonderful to have, have the right community around you and, and the right people. And that even makes the solo sojourns more meaningful because you know, you have that support behind you. And also to feel like even when you're away, um, when you're a part of a community that you're supporting other people and, and you're there for them, even though you're off doing this thing alone, it's, life doesn't just revolve around what you're doing. There's something else. Um, and and I, I do that with the land too. The land is also a part of that community that you can give back to and there's reciprocity. Yeah. I was wondering what are the attributes of that community that act as a support for you, you know, in even the land when you mentioned that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because when I look at the, the community, there's both, you know, the town I'm living in where I find that people are very, very friendly and, um, you know, love, truly love where they live and, Life is very simple. Nothing's overcomplicated. And you can just walk in, start chatting with someone at the grocery store. Um, but those people, like my friends, which are scattered throughout the Colorado Plateau, um, it's a lot of very individual, um, mind, individually minded people who are very self-reliant and very capable and very connected to the land, but also know that community matters and, and friends matter. But without that need to um, be just kind of surrounded by it constantly. There's breathing space in the, in the community that I've found and with friends, you know, I have wonderful friends who are going to be out backpacking for eight months this year. And yet we check in with each other when we have self service and, um, find ways to support each other, whether it's a place to stay or an encouraging note, um, before something important, even if we're far apart. So the community isn't necessarily, um, you know, going to town hall meetings and grabbing beer with friends every week. It's also the kind of support that um, nurtures a, a very independent desert life, which is, I know is very special and it's something that could have only come with time. Yeah. And it seems like you've been able to foster that over the years. It seems like it's really been able to act. Yeah. Again, the word that comes to mind is as a support for you as you go on these big adventures and explorations and that sort of thing. Absolutely. And I didn't always have that. And, you know, early on when I, was exploring the desert I didn't know as many people and hadn't been had many of these learning experiences and was in some not so healthy relationships that were not supportive and so going off to the desert on these solo adventures was often a means of escape um, and a place to feel safe Um, so that's the opposite of feeling the land felt supportive and in that it gave me that safety and refuge um, but it's been such a change to come out of those unhealthy experiences and replace those toxic relationships with truly healthy relationships and community and now feel like going into the desert I can look at it and go wow you were there for me and I, I had this refuge when I needed safety um, but now this is just a place of of enjoyment and um, and communion again community I feel like I can actually fully show up and be a part of it because there's support, not something 
to hide from. Yeah, and I wonder, um, I wonder, this might be difficult to put words to, but I wonder about what it is in that reciprocity or that reciprocal relationship with the land that becomes supportive to you. And I wonder if you can describe that experience at all or um, how that unfolds for you. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's something that just, um, it's it's much more big picture than than how it unfolds. I mean, day to day, I mean, I if, if, I, if I'm having a rough day and feeling rattled or and my nerves are kind of, jittery and I'm anxious I can go out into the desert and find a sunny slab of sandstone and I feel the calming effects of being out there and I know so much of that is what the, what what I feel coming from the land and that's both from a feeling from experience immersing myself in it but also learning about the area and its cultural significance and, and how it's been put together and all the things that coexist and are so resilient in the desert um but it, but it also is, I know, a conscious choice of mine to say, this is the place I go to reset. And that's something that we can all have. It doesn't have to be the desert. It can be a special place out in your yard or in a park where you live, where um, we, we go to nature to realize that we're not we're not just this isolated bundle of, oh, I have so many problems. Um, but, but you listen to the birds, you feel the breeze, you look up at the sun, and you realize you're a part of something, not not just an isolated, again, bundle of nerves and problems. I was wondering, in just retracing Bernheimer's steps, if is there a specific experience that you'd be willing to speak to that, I don't know, maybe felt truly or deeply connective in some sort of way? Like, I wonder, a landscape or a specific moment or event or anything uh, to that effect? You know, in particular, towards the end, I mean, there's so many, and I, really the whole book is littered with Littered's not a great word, but um, <laughs> don't litter in the desert. Um, yeah. Feist, yeah. Feist uh, and adorned with many of those moments. But um, towards the end of writing the book, this was early last summer, I um, was actually in a pretty tough place in my life and um, just having a rough go of finishing the book and healing from coming out of a, a bad relationship and um, I went to Bears Ears and I decided to go up and hike up to the Bears Ears, which th- this is, there's more to the story. Let's read the book for that. Um, but it's, it's traditionally known as a, as a place of healing for women. And, and I felt ready to go up there and, and to just sit. And especially because there was this view of so many places I had traveled for this project and I was nearing the end of writing the book but kind of stuck on where it was going to end and I went up there kind of feeling like I'm gonna have probably a really emotional gnarly time and I just need to go all the way into the darkness if I have to to finish writing and when I went up there there were hummingbirds and deer and flowers blooming and I felt immediately just uplifted in the sense of looking out on the land I saw so much love. I saw so much that I loved and not just so oh, it's beautiful. I love it here and it makes me feel good. But I saw stories. I saw friends who were deceased that were dear to me. I, I saw Bernheimer, you know, I saw the, the hands of so many people trying to protect this landscape. I realized that I was even in this hard time where I felt so alone and kind of just heart beat down, not even heartbroken, just heart had been, punched too much I saw so much love and I felt so much of my internal sorrows lift um and it was incredibly transformative and um 
and I also knew that it was time time to leave and move on. And so I followed the pulse of a couple monsoonal flash floods and, and ended up in the area that the this area of Glen Canyon that I've I've been in ever since. Yeah, wow. That I think that's the account in your epilogue. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and it's special to me. I, I bring that up because you know I'm sitting here now and I'm still feeling um, so much. So much of the journey of passive light was ups and downs and blind corners and and there's still you know life is full of that and I have lots of it but there's just this this peace and I'm so grateful um, and I know that that love that I understand when I see when I look out these landscapes how much that has affected my my choices and my life now. Well, it's powerful to hear you describe it in more detail. I think what you just offered is a little bit more detail even than what's written there. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks for for asking about it. Yeah, well, um, you know, it was something I noticed in your writing is that it seemed like your paragraphs or your chapters begin with a description of what you observe around you and uh, maybe even um, then a summary of interactions with people discussing that area or region and then turning inward to your thoughts and your experience. And it, it left me with this question of how does the outer world, um, facilitate observation of your own inner experience? And I think you've been addressing that. Um, but yeah, would you just be willing to speak to how does the outer world become a facilitator of that exploration of your inner world? I, I absolutely would. That's, that's thought on with, with how I see the world. Um, how I experience it I I know that part of the reason I'm so drawn to being outside is because it also draws parts of me that are inside outside um whereas when I'm kind of contained into a house they may not um maybe have the wind pulling something out of me that's been kind of in turmoil or you know I even have been thinking about how the last few years have been so drought stricken in the Southwest. And many of these hikes took place in areas with very little water where often I knew I have to carry this huge burden of water and I have to find more or my life is in danger. And and that was so reflective of the healing from trauma I was experiencing in my inner world, but also the daily, you know, some really negative experiences in my life that I was going through and now to have this winter that was so long, it actually kind of held me inside longer than, than ever before. And it's about to run off and release and there's this abundance and I'm feeling that in my life too. Um, and I really think nature helps me um, put words to what I'm experiencing, but, but also it, it kind of clues me in that there is something to um, living so closely to nature. Like maybe I'm mirroring nature. You know, it's, it's more, again, I just come to the, to the notebook, um, or even no notebook. I'm really a fan of just sitting and, and observe, and I observe yeah. and I'm still observing this. Um, but na- nature is, um, such a lens to observe ourselves through. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Oh, I was just wondering, like, uh, kind of coming back to the topic of observation, I was curious, like what you've seen unfold just through your time there, um, even over, you know, I guess it's been about six years now, how you describe what you've seen? The most drastic thing I've seen is the um, water levels in Lake Powell dropping. Hmm. And I, I'm great. In 2017, there was still enough water in the lake, especially up at height. I remember distinctly 
paddling a pack raft across from Height Marina, across to the other side of the lake. And and now it's only confined to the river channel. And so the areas I paddled over are, are you can walk across them on the dirt. And so I, I not only is the the bathtub ring larger, but I, I do have a, a kind of yardstick from my own experiences of the water dropping so drastically. Um, but also, I, w- I would say the biggest change, um, I know people talk about the increased visitation. I think 2020 was the biggest, oh, whoa, yeah, things are really maybe even getting a little bit out of out of hand. Um, and, and I've definitely seen the visitation mellow out from 2020. And this is coming from observations of going to the same places repeatedly year after year, season after season, living out on the landscape and and so not just what you know because you can go out on a busy weekend and go this place is destroyed um but it you know it's maybe just a busy memorial day weekend <laughs> um but the consistency in 2020 and of course i say this as someone who's still a part of the crowd um but there were a lot of people out and it was very um alarming whether it was up in the san juan mountains of colorado or down in the Escalante Canyon to see the lack of ethics that were going along with that increased visitation and areas were just getting hammered. People were driving off roads. They were camping on unregulated campsites, you know, not even established spots. There was more trash. Um, It it was problematic. It wasn't just, oh, this place is getting overrun with people. It was it was getting impacted by people who were not being courteous to the landscape. And so um, while that's been dialed back, I do think that um, educating people and instilling an ethic of stewardship and giving back to these places that you love is more important than ever before. And that is something that Bernheimer really um, can frame for everyone. And while we may not have, many of us like myself, do not have lots of money to give back to these places, um, there are so many ways to give back starting by educating yourself and the people you hike and and go on adventures with about um, the ethics of exploring outdoor, you know, any outdoor location with respect and leaving no trace and and treading lightly. Um, But also getting back by giving back by joining conservation groups and, and hopefully inspiring the people who do have the financial means um, to really invest in the people and the, the groups that are doing the heavy lifting on the legal side to protect these areas um, because it is it both for from development and from just sheer numbers of more people on the planet we're going to see more impacts in these places that we love um, and and so we can't just talk about it a um, hundred years goes fast and a lot can happen yeah it's staggering to even hear you just describe the water levels change since you know the last handful of years and that kind of thing it's also interesting to hear like how that time frame correlates with covid and a lot of people um, finding themselves out in those places your author description describes you as a defender of wild places and um i guess through that the thing i hear you saying is education is one way that um education and instilling an ethic around the relationship and how the land is treated and approached is really important to you it absolutely is, but I, I do know, and um, and this is for me personally, but I, I know from other people I've spoken to as well, that um, it can't just be, okay, we're going to do a PowerPoint and teach you how to take better care of these places. We, we respond best, many of us, to, truly to inspiration, 
um, and stories. And, and that's what I felt so inspired by Bernheimer's story, someone who I wouldn't expect to care so much about a landscape half a, you know, halfway across the country from where he lived and half a world away from where he grew up. Um, but it really showed the power of, of inspiration. It started with, with childhood stories about the Southwest and vacations that took his breath away um, and being inspired to, to do what you're capable of to give back. And I think gone are the days of, I, I think about, you know, oh, we all got to get outside and exercise or, oh, it's really, nature's really good for our well-being. That is really well known. And there are many of us reaping the benefits. And it is, we are in the era of how do I give back for all the good that the natural world continues to bring to me and the other people and, and see it not as our playground, but a place that we, we share with the wildlife and the natural world. We're, we're a part of it. We're not just these separate, um, we can't just see ourselves as, as tourists who go play in these places. Yeah, there's still kind of like an extractive sort of relationship in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Morgan, we have a time for a couple more questions. And one thing I was wondering, um, is you mentioned you are sitting in the sun today, you're writing and Mm -hmm. um, you're in a remote location in the Colorado plateau. And I wonder what lies on the horizon for you. Uh, (laughs) Well, for, for the immediate horizon, which is how I live my life, I have wrapped up some big, um, long lead journalist, uh, journalism assignments. I can't even talk. Oh my gosh. This is what Canyon brain does to me. Um, and so I'm going, I'm going to be using next month to get out and explore and write some new stories and document what I see around Glen Canyon, um, before the water really bumps up. Um, that's the immediate horizon. Um, I might as well say for the summer, I, my, Current seems to have shifted and I'm going to be going back to some mountains that are really near and dear to my heart and work on some stories about water and an overabundance of water. So, um, I'm, I'm excited to continue my migratory course of following nature. Yeah, absolutely. And water and being in places where there's not a lot and then going to document or speak to where there's an overabundance. Exactly. It's the, it's the same, but the total opposite of the last few years. Now there's too much water. Um, and, and I get to go back to some places that I, that I love and I'm, I'm really excited to be closer to some friends and family and, and just have some, some change. I, I love the desert, but with the water coming up in Glen Canyon, it feels like, um, not the end, just the closing of a chapter for right now. Well, we have a question that we like to ask, um, uh, guests that we have on and most of our guests live within the Flagstaff area. So we often ask this question in relation to Flagstaff, but maybe if we extend that to the Colorado plateau, uh, in a couple of sentences, how would you describe, uh, your relationship to the Colorado plateau? I mean, the Colorado plateau is my, is where I call home. Um, but certainly the, I consider Glen Canyon, the heart of the Glen Canyon or Glen Canyon, the heart of, can I start this question over? Oh yeah. Well, you can keep this. It's fine. So, you know, I have this thing called editing brain and this is how my writing process goes. I blurt these things out. I'm like, my gosh, what am I trying to say? Delete, cross out, rewrite. 
Well, we uh, we actually just do that all the time, but we don't delete or rewrite. Rewrite. We just uh, yeah, it just is what it is. <laughs> it just was, it's fine. You can keep it. This is everything. Nothing comes out perfect. Um, but anyways, within the Colorado Plateau, which I consider home, Glen Canyon is undoubtedly the heart, the lifeline, and it has imprinted itself on me. And I feel as though if you could cut my body in half, that is what my insides would look like. I, I just truly feel the most connected and at peace um, and a, a part of something so much bigger. This, this is my habitat. Such a cool description. Yeah, well, we appreciate the time you've taken to share with us the, the knowledge that you've gained from the people you've learned from and from the land that you've experienced firsthand. So thank you so much for your time, Morgan. Thank you so much for having me on. It was wonderful talking with you. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, Morgan has just left the chateau. Yeah, the telephonic chateau. (laughs) Telephonic chateau. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. What a time, yo. Oh, what a time. Thank you for your time, Morgan. Yeah, covering out out some minutes to talk about connection to self, others, and the natural world, and then her book, Path of Light. Yeah, Morgan Shogren, a a real baller, huh? At running underscore bum on EIG, get there. Get there. Yeah, so Dunny, what do you, you know, I guess it was kind of immediate reflection after the interview, but what's something that stands out for you? Oh, there's a lot. Um, Man, if I had to pick one, something that sticks out to me, um, I thought she said it so well, and she put words to something that I think I had um, maybe felt but hadn't really put into words, so I really appreciate the words she put to it, was um, that essentially we've been in an era where we're aware that wellness comes from being outdoors and maybe even movement outdoors specifically, Um, but it may be time to shift out of that area, that, that era that we need to realize that we do extract wellness from the earth, but actually that should be a reciprocal relationship. So maybe the movement or next step from understanding that we benefit from being outside and how beautiful it is outside to realizing that we should contribute wellness back to the earth. And it should be, uh, you know, more of a reciprocity than just a one direction, unidirectional thing. Yeah. 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 There's all this psychological research, right. On the benefits of being in the natural world. Like it's uh, decades old. Yeah. Overall cognitive functioning, um, you know, regulating emotion and mood, creativity, IQ, all these things are, yeah. Benefit from being in the natural world. And there's kind of this layer of it. It's like, well, if you only approach the natural world to develop that thing, it's also kind of extractive, extractive. Yeah. It's perpetuating this process of a non-reciprocal relationship, which, um, tend to live in relationships and they're most healthy when they're, mm-hmm. uh, and so I want to double down. I yeah. don't want to leave it as vague as like, Oh, we should give wellness back to the earth. I actually think there are very practical ways. And she started to address those. One is like educate yourself, but that still is kind of vague or ambiguous. Mm-hmm. I think that lived ethics practice as ethics. So how you're aware of erosion or how you're aware of, um, trail etiquette, things like that are the ways that you give back to, or, the degree of attention you're paying to your surroundings versus like going out and treating it like a workout facility. Yeah. Um, I think those are all the practical ways to apply a reciprocal relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I think we even mentioned this in a previous episode with, but Colleen Cooley's remember when she was talking Mm -hmm. about moving through the world and she'll take time to just observe the critters and, Mm -hmm. um, like look at the, the plants that are around and the trees and that sort of thing. And there is this cognitive framework that sort of, 
I don't know, um, creates the context to experience that in some mm-hmm. way. Yeah. But yeah, just go in there to see the, the world is your gym. Yeah. It's unidirectional. Huh? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. What'd you take? What'd you get from Morgan? I, I really feel the same as you in terms of there are so many things that we could talk about. Like she spoke to so many incredible, I, I feel just incredible things. And I feel compelled to ask a million more questions, but you know, we always talk about connection to self, connection to others, connection to the natural world. First for me is like, she seems so connected in all three of those realms. Mm-hmm. And then it was really interesting for me to listen to, to Morgan talk about her experience, um, in writing path of light and following this expedition by Charles Bernheimer a long time ago. And the thing that came to my mind was like, ah, oh, this sounds so similar to, um, similar and different to Don Kish in following Tad Nichols, right. Mm-hmm. And documenting Glen Canyon. And there's these parallels and these things that are similar in that. And I was just thinking, how cool is it that, uh, these two women are, or have kind of like followed that, have mm-hmm. taken that on and documented their experiences, Don through photography and then Morgan through writing. And, um, yeah, to me, I was just really struck by that in the way that she talks about, um, the experiences she had in the desert her description, if you were to cut her body in half and then of the inside would be Glen Canyon. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like, it seems like in choosing to follow that, um, idea and the initial led exploration that it, uh, really left an imprint. It's mm-hmm. like embodied by her now. Yeah. Embodied yeah. is a good word. And, and some of that coming from the relationship that she developed with Bernheimer's experiences, similar to the relationship that Don had with Tad's experiences. Tad, yeah. And these are people who had come before them and they were, um, I don't, I don't know what word comes to mind. They just sort of honored their work and recognized that they did come before. It didn't totally, um, put them in a box as I have to do it the exact same way, but it influenced them. Mm-hmm. And Morgan describes seeing both, both sides of the fence, like with Charles, he did these incredible things and we have a lot we have almost nothing in common. And then there was these other things in common as well. Mm -hmm. And there were some things about him that were outdated and Mm -hmm. that's okay. Mm -hmm. And here's how I did it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, yeah. Connection to history, like uh, (laughs) connection to self, (laughs) others, the environment and history. Yeah. Yeah. Well, remember in our eco psych or our eco uh, psychology episode, we talk about that a little bit, right? Yeah. Like there's a deep connection to history and lineage that exists and, I think that's important. The narratives and the stories we have and yeah. are passed down. Shout out a uh, quick and nerdy on eco psychology. Yeah. You can always go check that show out. It stands alone now. <laughs> Q U I C K N space nerdy on any of your podcast platforms. <laughs> you can be our first subscriber. Yeah. Oh, why don't you take us out by shouting us out? No doubt. Good to be back in the dunny. You can always find us on the interwebs, www.beyondflag.com. Flag spelled. F-L-G, and it's the chateau, not the dunny. Oh, shoot. Yeah, man, we are in Le Chateau today. It's a fine day for the chateau. You can also find us on Instagram, beyond underscore flag. Flag also spelled F-L-G. All right, take care. Loveys. Love